Hey everybody, this is Chris and this is episode four of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, Steve is here with me. Hi, Steve. Hello, Chris. And we've got a special guest today. Today's topic, kind of main topic, is going to be footwear and how do you think about footwear fitting. As we've talked about before, we are both a training center and a running store here at Rogue Running. And so we have all kinds of footwear for whatever your needs may be running wise and so we have a pretty strong philosophy on fitting, which we'll share and talk about today. We're also joined here with Dr. Kim Davis from Run Lab, who is now our roommate, so to speak, at the speed shop. And she has a similar view on footwear, so she's here to provide the medical practitioner's perspective on fitting. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. We'll do more introduction on her in a second, but we're looking forward to talking about footwear. I think our approach to footwear is a little bit different than you might hear about traditionally in running specialty, so this should be an interesting topic for us all. As always, we're going to start off with a little bit of news slash current events and I think it's appropriate starting the new year, Steve, to start with a pretty inspirational running performance that ended last year to give some inspiration for us as we go into 2017. So tell us about Mr. Ed Whitlock. Yeah, so this is uh, caught my attention recently. I'd, I'd heard about Ed Whitlock over the last few years, but I guess this last year he's he's gotten a, bu- a bit more notoriety. Um, he, recent, he was born in 1931. He's a a British-born Canadian. He emigrated, um, I think, in the 50s to uh, Ontario. He's a miner, actually got a mining degree and did mining. But the really interesting thing is, in two months ago at the Toronto Waterfront Marathon, he ran a 356.33 marathon, which most people will look, look at and think about and think, well, that's, that's a solid marathon time, but nothing to, to write home about until you consider the fact that he's 85 years of age. I'm, Still doing it. Still doing it and doing it at an incredibly high level. Um, so I did a little bit more digging into his background, and man, he's a super interesting guy. He's he's been a part of a long illustrious running history. Um, he was a teammate with Alan Turing um, of Enigma fame and uh, artificial intelligence sort of pioneer. Who, by the way, many people don't know, was fifth at the 1948 British Olympic selection. He almost was an Olympian, Alan wow. Turing, watch, which is crazy. But anyway, we're not talking about Alan Turing. We're talking about <laughs> Ed Wentlock. Sorry, yeah. I got a little distracted. So this one data point hit me that I was just absolutely shocked with. So at the age of 73, Ed ran a 254.58. 254.48. When you do the age grading, and age grading is basically measuring any performance against the mean, that is equivalent to a 203.47. I mean, he's world, absolute, mind-blowingly world-class. <laughs> what he did at 73, and he's still the only human to ever go sub-three in history. At the age of 70. So anyway, you know, his, his background, knowing um, Chris Chataway and Gordon Pyrie, who were actually Olympians in 48, he talks in this interview, um, which we you can find it on Let's Run. It's a... It's a phenomenal interview. I highly recommend it. Two parts. The first part just came out the other day at the first of the year, and there's another one that's going to be coming out. He's got perspectives on Emil Zadopek. If you've got any interest in running history, but also interest in sort of what it's like to, to continue to run in your elder as you get older and older and what kind of expectations you might have and, and sort of inspiration for yourself, you've got to read this interview and, and, and do a little digging into Ed Whitlock's life. And we'll link to it from our pod- podcast summary 
But man, I want to be Ed Whitlock when I grow up. <laughs> Runs up right. for it, eighty-five <laughs> years old. So it does raise a question because some of us, you know, me included, are getting older in this room. Uh, and and so, how do you maintain that kind of performance into the later decades of your life? And I know a big part of it for Ed Whitlock, having read a little bit about it myself, is consistency. Just getting out and doing it day in and day out, not necessarily running fast but just being consistent with his work. What else, Steve, what else should we be thinking about to stay fit and compete at a high level as we get older? You know, it kind of goes back to our, our discussions in the previous ones where we talk about consistency, as you said. We also talk about getting the miles in. We also talk about, it's a lot of the same litany of crucial, critical things that are important. But one other piece I think that's really important is he talks a little bit about his recovery and how he takes care of his body and how much time he gives himself between his workouts. And that's what we've found over the years. Now that I've been coaching for 25 plus years, adults, you find out really quickly that older folks can get faster. And actually, I, I take great pride in having many people come to me and say, I'll never get my PR. I had my PR when I was 35 and I'm 45 or 50. And I think there's no reason why you can't, depending on what your PR is, what's most important is are you going to be willing to do the recovery and to also take the time between hard efforts and to get recovered? Because in my experience, that's the that's the toughest thing. You got to be more patient in recovery, more patient in general with your workouts. Listen to your body. We talked about that in episode one. <laughs> Any thoughts from you, Dr. Davis? You're still getting faster. Yeah. You're not yeah. old by any stretch, but, but started, you're still getting faster. Yeah. I started very light in life too, as a runner. And so it's cool to see some of the gains happen. You know, I'm 40, I'm going to be 41 this year. And so I've, you know, I just PR'd on my five mile race two months ago. So it's cool. But I think at our clinic, we see a lot of older patients too. And to Steve's point, I think recovery is huge and you have to take it a lot more seriously than you do when you're a kid you can just kind of work through, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, strength training, I think is the other piece of the puzzle. I think you got to do more the older you get to be able to maintain That's you know, right. the same kind of level. That's what I need to start doing. Oh, it's rough. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All of us. I'm falling apart. <laughs> it doesn't take much. It's like That's 20 true. to 30 minutes a day and said. getting out and doing it. And I don't know, but I think I see some barbells right out the window here <laughs> and a couple other things. You mean <laughs> I have all the tools in front of me? Oh, yeah, you <laughs> might. You know? See, uh, I, could, I could pick at him because I don't have any aspirations at that point of getting back into my old running career. And if I got any of my PRs, that would be a miracle. So uh, anyway, Ed well, Whitlock, an absolute, an absolute inspiration. So I'm inspired. I'm going to go do my strength training, <laughs> Mr. Ed, and read that interview. Okay, so with that, let's jump into our topic. Again, we're going to be talking about footwear and footwear fitting today, hoping to debunk some of the myths of the old ways of thinking on this. And for that, we brought, we brought in Dr. Davis from Run Lab. Quick introduction, Dr. Davis. What's your story? And then we'll talk a little bit about Run Lab and how that relates to Rogue. Okay, cool. So uh, like I mentioned, I started running in probably mid-20s. I put myself through college playing the trumpet, so I didn't do anything athletic at all. So once I got into running, um, I got into downhill mountain biking, actually, of all things, and then was kind of hooked by the whole triathlon idea. Ended up being a terrible, terrible swimmer. And so decided, okay, well, if I'm going to be really crappy at the swim and pretty good at the bike, I got to do something about the run to solve, you know, the ultimate overall time. So started looking into running and, and realized that there weren't a lot of resources out there to help me figure out how to run better. 
And so kind of worked on it on my own for a long time. And I got into chiropractic school at the time and kind of put all that stuff on the back burner a little bit and ended up um, at some point I was riding my bike and actually got clotheslined by a chain across a walkway and uh, injured my knee pretty good, but didn't have insurance. So I kind of didn't deal with it, but it definitely affected my running. So fast forward like 10 years and uh, finally ended up in an orthopedist office to get my knee figured out. And his answer to me was, well, you know what you need to do is you need to stop running because running's bad for you and you need to just take up cycling. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me because I'd run like nine miles to my appointment with this orthopedist. <laughs> so like the whole thing was ridiculous, right? So I threw his card away as I walked out the door and said, okay, there's there's more to this. You know, there was no talk about biomechanics or massage or strength training or anything about the running itself that might be causing me some of these problems with my knee. So and at the time, I was kind of new out of chiropractic school, and I, I was looking at all of my patients with this tiny little video camera and trying to figure out what was going on with their mechanics that might be affecting their their issues and causing them pain. And so that's kind of how Run Lab got started, was I started realizing that it wasn't just a part of the puzzle, it was the puzzle. You know, looking at people's movement patterns is more important than any other thing you can do when you assess a patient, in my opinion. And so, and I've always felt, too, that the the medical world really needs to niche out more than it does. I feel like we better serve patients if we're really good at one very small thing. And so that's what Run Lab attempts to be is we really try to work on people's gait mechanics and their their movement patterns to help them run, to stay injury free, to prevent injury, all of those things. And so that's what Run Lab is. We do gait evaluations, we do sports medicine specifically for runners of all levels. People that are, you know, just starting out all the way up to we've seen Olympians, we've seen tons of junior Olympians, you know, lots of kids, lots of elderly people, just a, a wide variety of patient population. And how did you end up in Austin? I came down actually in 2011 to do the half Ironman that they do here and uh, was, of course, enamored with the fact that it was 85 and sunny in October. So literally the next day after I got back from Austin, I broke up with the guy I'd been dating for four years and quit my job and packed my car and came on down. And so like a lot of people who live here, I was born in San Antonio, but we moved up to Oregon when I was two. So I'd been down to Texas a bit. Um, but anyway, like a lot of people from Austin, I'm a transplant and, uh, it's been great. I mean, it's amazing running city. I love it here. You can train all year round, similar to Portland in the, in the fact that it's such an active city. Uh, so it was a great place for, for my business and for me as a, just as a human. Okay. So recently you guys run lab moved into the 410 speed shop here at 410 Pressler street with us rogue running in Austin. Tell us about that transition and kind of how we've been thinking about the world together in yeah. the last few months. Yeah, so it's been it's been amazing. Uh, it, it, when I moved to Austin, I already had great respect for what Rogue was doing. I think you guys have been doing really good things on the fit side. I think you look at things the right way. So we've had our eyes on being in some collaborative experience with you guys for a a long time, for several years. And so when a a space finally opened up, uh, we jumped on it. And I think it's been fantastic because now we have everything that a runner might possibly need all under one roof. And so... I I really think that we're doing something on the front end of it's not happening all around the country. This is something that not a lot of places are doing. I think it's the way it needs to go where we have sports medicine and gait evaluations and shoe fitting and training and, you know, strength work all under one roof. But there aren't many places like this in the country doing anything similar. So I think it's a really great fit. Years and years ago, we 
talked and actually our formulation of the beginnings of uh, the second phase of Rogue were really wrapped around getting this idea of having a, a, a fit community and a, and a basic space that was designed to fit all the different groupings that needed to happen. And, uh, you know, we're each, each, each couple of months, we seem to get getting, getting closer and closer and closer by having more and uh, consistent collaborations, um, with people just like y'all. So tell me a little bit about that experience. We're going to talk a lot about shoe fitting, but I have one question. You got a chance to meet with all of our coaches recently and do a, a, uh, a, a discussion with them about your practice and how you do things. And tell me what factor a coach has in this process that you all see when you see athletes coming in that are injured or hurt how do you how do you approach the mindset of them having a coach and also the mindset of how your facilitations and the things you're going to be doing are going to get played out in real time on the streets of Austin or in streets of anywhere how do you manage that sort of you've got this sort of third party involved yeah. there that doesn't always work there's always communicating how do you look at that and what things do you think are important for the athlete to know about communicating with their coach? Right. So I actually love the fact that we're in an environment with so many coaches because we can speak directly to the coaches about the athlete. So whenever that's possible, that's the preferred route. Um, one thing I think it's really important to understand about Run Lab is we aren't coaches. You know, we work on the foundational components of the run because there are a lot of things that people need to be able to do from a strength perspective before they should ever really be out there running at all um so we work on that kind of stuff and then we work on people you know cleaning up people's mechanics and helping them prevent injury as best we can and then we work with the coaches to help them the coaches are the ones who are going to design the mileage and and they're also going to be the ones on the ground level really spotting a lot of these things before the athlete even knows it's leading them down the road to injury so one of the things i talked to the coaches about was hey here are a bunch of structural things that you might see in an athlete that are going to predispose them to certain types of injuries. If you see these things in your athlete, your athlete may not even know that they have knock knees or bowed tibias or all of these things that as a coach, you're going to see and you may see it play out in some funky kind of movement pattern that you don't necessarily understand to the nth level from a biomechanics standpoint, but you know something's not right. And you know that's something that you can spot that you can then bring that athlete to us and say, hey, how do we work with this? Because you can't change people's structure. You know, you can work with their functional deficits and their strength limiters and all these other things, but you can't change their, change their structural makeup. But if you can spot it, you can find ways to work around it. And I think that's how we've been able to collaborate with the coaches is just to teach them what to be looking for with these athletes. That's something that we can help them with. And then we all collaborate for the betterment of the, the athlete. You're talking about a teamwork. Yeah, approach. teamwork. Imagine I love that. It. We love it. That because reminds we, me a little bit about being when I was coaching at UT. You know, we that's those are the steps that we took. The 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 they, we didn't have um, a person in exactly your role. We had a, we had the doctors that checked their health, but we had a, a a trainer that sort of really fit a lot of the same things that sort of a half a PT and half of a of a chiropractic or a doctor, and they do. They, the whole plan there was to have many eyes watching the athlete in many different yeah. spaces and many different ways of operating. And 
watching races, watching um, workouts, and then the coach could then facilitate through it. But none of it was awesome for me. I didn't have to be pretend like I was a doctor on TV, which it seems like as a coach I have to do way more frequently than I choose to. So it's I'll tell you, we love having you around because we can immediately send them to a place that says, hey, go get looked at. Go see what the basic things are going on here because – we, we're not, the coaches aren't trained for that stuff, you know? Yeah. So. And one of the things I think that's also been cool on that note is that a lot of the coaches have come in and had their own biomechanics assessed just so they can have more tools in their belt. They can understand, you know, what are, what is the conversation we're having with, with their athletes and with our patients. And we just, we're really big on education here. We want to teach people whatever they want to learn about their bodies. We want to teach them as much as we can about biomechanics and, you know, movement patterns and strength and all of these things that a lot of people, coaches included, don't know about. And so mm -hmm. it's just a big, it's it's a big important thing for us to be involved with the coaching community at Rogue because they're just, they're so great. We love them and they, see, they have this thirst for knowledge about all this stuff too. So they come to us and want to learn and it's just, it's really great. So let's switch to talking about shoes. Okay. And it's kind of ironic that we start here in a lot of ways because I think our philosophy generally as a group is that the shoe is actually the last thing to worry about. Really, you should worry right. about the body first. But we're going to try to debunk some of the myths out there because for most people, they think the shoe is the answer. If I could just get the right shoes and everything will be good and all my pains will go away. So as we jump into talking about footwear, I wanted to start with a little bit of history give people some background on where we came from. So it wasn't until the 1920s that the sort of first official running shoe made it to this planet. And that was actually produced by the ultimate founder of Adidas, Mr. Adolf Dassler, who was in Germany. And then later on, it continued to evolve as, as ASICS was founded in the 50s in Asia. So there's started this sort of parallel path of footwear development in Germany and Asia. And then, of course, Nike came along in the, in the 60s and then 70s and began producing their own versions in the U.S. It wasn't until Bowerman put the first rubber into a waffle iron and invented the waffle racer did you really begin to have prolific, prolific availability of running shoes in the 70s. It was also when they first started having a big running boom right. so and there were a lot more people wearing shoes and you had sponsored athletes at that time you had the jogging boom happen really in the 70s mm -hmm. and so if you think about our history in footwear we're pretty young in terms of thinking about the science behind footwear and footwear fitting so the 70s was sort of the first shoe first really mass-produced shoes and mass purchase shoes and those shoes were really really simple I think if anybody's seen a waffle racer, then it, it looks pretty much like a modern day racing flat, very neutral as many would describe it. So no sort of stability or support elements. And it's just a shoe with a little bit of foam and rubber on the bottom. So really simple, lightweight. And for that decade, at least the seventies, everybody thought that was enough. Well, it wasn't until the eighties and the early eighties, and you can actually see some of the ads in, in some of the magazines we have downstairs in our space, the very first ads talking about pronation and the post, which basically was invented in the eighties as an evolution of technology and running shoes to help deal with maybe injuries that people were having. And since that point in the eighties, Basically, this concept of pronation, and many have heard the term overpronation, has become the central element for determining how to fit running shoes. 
And so we're here today to, to talk about some of the mythologies of that. And really in the last, it's starting to evolve and, and we've gone through a paradigm shift in the last 10 years, but really nothing has changed significantly in terms of fitting over the last 30 plus years since that post was first put into shoes in the early 80s. So let's talk about this concept of pronation. And I'll turn this to you, Dr. Davis. As most people think about pronation today, like what's the basic, most basic definition that's used in sort of what I'm going to call traditional fitting philosophies? Yeah. So I would say that most people, when they talk about pronation, they talk about it um, as the ankle rolling in and the foot collapse or the arch collapsing, I guess, is probably the way that I hear it most described. That was how actually Runner's World just posted an article on pronation explained uh, a month or so ago. And it talked all about the rolling in of the ankle and that you need to, to stabilize a, a, a weak foot and arch with a stability shoe. So that's kind of what prompted, I think, part of having this discussion was, wow, they're still thinking that even in December of 2016. <laughs> <laughs> so so basically one variable, and many people yeah. have been on a treadmill where somebody was looking at their gait and trying to determine how much sure. they pronate. And if your ankle sort of rolls past that that vertical line that connects the bottom of your foot to your leg, then people would say you overpronate. Overpronate, correct. Or perhaps you're a neutral runner and you don't pronate as much. And then also you might say someone underpronates if they're not quite getting to that vertical line. Steve, I'll turn to you. You've been fitting shoes for how long? I started working in footwear. Um, well, I started wearing shoes as a little kid. I had to wear women's shoes. I had to get a <laughs> hand-me-down stride rights in order to get a shoe that would fit my little foot at the time. But I started running when I was six, so 1976 or so. I started working in the run techs in 1991. So I don't know. You tell me how many years that is. I'm an old man. It's hard to so figure out. So 25 years <laughs> yes. of fitting. Fitting shoes. Fitting yes. shoes. So talk about your experiences in learning to fit in the 90s, early 90s. Um, but at that point in time, you know, we had an innovative and really far seeing. I had a mentor in Paul Carosa, the owner of Runtex, who already took a very different approach to the way footwear was made and the way that footwear was looked at as a shoe salesman. And eventually we ended up building shoes in the back of the store. We got out EVA, we carved it, we added, we added tires like car, like a car inner tubes to the outsides of them, did our, took the uppers from other shoes and played with them. So he was way far ahead realizing that we needed shoes that rolled through, that had less that had less thickness to them and more um, roll and more you know movement through the entire shoe. And, but that was way far ahead of what was going on at the time. At the time it was um, the A6 2010 or the A6 2001 or whichever one it was, was the monster. It was the, it's not super heavy, not super posted, pretty lightweight shoe, but it was constantly throwing people into this position of like arch pain and, you know, throwing their, their, their gate out. But conventionally, that's what people cocked in that walked in the door asking for. So in a sense, we were taught from, from Paul to, to, to sh- sort of push people towards the way we fit today, which is... Right less volume um cushions okay but less volume and certainly don't try to do too much correcting of what's going on with the natural form and gait so it was very hard for us to have that philosophy in play but also be out there selling i mean tons and tons and tons of posted shoes 
So, you know, in a sense, there was a dichotomy going on inside the head of how you balance these two things. But, I mean, at the time we were selling so many shoes, it didn't matter. People were, you know, but it was all about making sure that someone didn't pronate. That's how it was termed. The way we talked about it over pizzas and beer after after the day was over was something very different from what we were doing on the floor on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, I would say I probably am a little bit not exactly the right person to talk to right. about it because I had such an unconventional uh, unconventional education with it. But um, I do think that you you just, you people are still doing it today since 1991, walking in the door saying, I pronate, I need a shoe that's got more support in it. And, you know, you just wring your wring your hair and say what's going on here how is it so for the most part so for the most part over the last 30 years or so really more 30 plus years the industry has largely fit on this one variable obviously different stores will have different philosophies and they might include other components to that but for the most part you hear about people looking at how much the foot pronates as it lands on the ground and then deciding the type of shoe. And generally you have three categories of shoe that people may hear about. There's the stability shoes, which will have posts in them. And we'll talk about posts in a second. There's the neutral or cushioned shoes that are for those that don't pronate too much. And then you'll have a category which is dying, fortunately, but this most in control category, which is on the far end, that is super, super controlling and and is like, almost like putting a, your foot in a cast, but is for those that have extreme issues, at least according to the traditional fitting philosophy. Now, where's the science on that, Dr. Davis? Is there any well, science that would no. point to the formation of the post in the 80s? Is no. there any science? No. Sadly, no. <laughs> I think uh, I think to the point you guys are making, you know, it was it was very much the shoe industry realizing that there was a big money play by going into this whole concept of pronation and convincing people that there was something wrong with them if they were rolling in. Um, but there really isn't science to suggest that that matters at all. Um, there, in fact, it, it, it's tough because it's a, pronation and supination are really hard things to measure because even though people generally consider it as this as this rolling in of the foot, I mean, it's really a triplanar movement that happen. It's movement that's happening in all three dimensions of of the body. And so, to actually measure that, even in a lab with very sophisticated equipment, is very difficult. And then when you try to add to the mix that people's structural makeup is so variable, and some people are gonna pronate more than others, and it's gonna be just fine. Good luck trying to pigeonhole that into some kind of a this person needs this type of shoe and that person needs that type of shoe. It just doesn't work. And so, no, there's no science supporting that that old antiquated way of fitting shoes and putting people on the treadmill and just looking at their foot and ankle because that's all they really do. When I'm sure you guys run into this issue where people call you and they say, well, do you guys do gait evaluations on the treadmill? And in their mind, they're thinking, do you put me on a treadmill, look at just my foot and decide if, if it rolls in too much to determine what kind of shoe I need. And really, that makes no sense at all, because if you're not looking at the full body and understanding where the load is and where the stress is and what's going on up top, it makes no difference if the foot rolls in or not, because you don't know what's causing any of that to happen or whether it's important or it isn't. Not to mention the fact that with the naked eye, it's hard to see. Absolutely, <laughs> see, uh, it is. You know that triplanar movement that you talk about. So let's unpack right. it for uh, unpack everything you just said for a second because yeah. you you threw out a lot of words and concepts <laughs> that we want to make sure people understand. Yeah. First of all, 
at the very basic level, what happens or what's happening? Why is your body doing the things you said, pronating and supinating? Why is okay. it doing that? So to when your when your foot pronates, basically what's happening is as, as you go through the gait cycle, let's take running gait cycle. So you've got four basic parts of the gait cycle. Your foot touches down, so you've got foot strike. Uh, then you've got stance phase where your body comes over the top of your planted foot, and that's the time when your body goes into shock absorption phase, and it absorbs all these ground reaction forces coming up at it. And then you push off, and then your foot swings through the air. So those are the basic four parts. During stance phase, like we were just talking about, the foot needs to become flexible and become a mobile adapter so that it can adapt to the ground, but also so that your body can absorb shock. So in order for that to happen, your foot needs to pronate. And for your foot to pronate, movements happen in all three planes, like we were just talking about, so that your foot can become flexible. And when your foot becomes flexible, the arch sort of collapses and it makes your foot to the point of whatever how everybody describes it, it looks like your foot is kind of rolling in but that needs to happen because your body needs to be able to to absorb shock so as your body is passing over the top of that planted foot your foot then needs to come out of that pronation and become rigid again which is supination so it needs to become supinated so that your foot is a rigid lever in order to propel your body weight forward so if you don't have both of those pieces of the gait cycle either you're going to have a hard time propelling your body weight forward without causing some problems up the kinetic chain or if you have problems on the pronation side you're going to have problem absorbing shock from the ground and so you need both of those pieces of the puzzle and I think where the shoe industry has kind of gone wrong is they don't look at the timing of pronation and how rapidly somebody pronate those kinds of things which I think clinically are much more important to injury prevention and deciding whether somebody has an issue that's going to cause them problems than whether they pronate to a certain degree or not I think it's much less about that and much more about the speed of the pronation and how long they stay pro do they get back into supination because they can pronate a ton but if they get back into supination just fine that's probably normal movement for their body and you don't need to stop it and control it because one thing I think it's important to remember with all this stuff is that you can't take load off of one part of the body and just magically make it go away if you take that load off of the foot by stabilizing the foot you're just sending the load up to the knee or the hip or somewhere else some other part of the body has to absorb that shock and so to say that we're going to stabilize your foot and that's going to solve all your issues well no it's probably going to cause more problems up top so it's just that's why you have to look at the full body and you have to understand what biomechanics are it's not so simple it's just saying we're going to stop the pronation and it's magically going to fix you so you're saying that pronation and accompanying supination are natural parts of yes. the gait cycle that everyone needs in order to absorb forces? Yes, very important. Interesting. So then we have to ask, well, why would we want to control that? Why would we want to control that? <laughs> why would we want to control that? Right. That is, that That's is a rhetorical the question, question of the day, right? <laughs> why but would we indeed? <laughs> our industry has decided that that's the thing we want to control and the foot or the shoe is supposed to control it in order to proactively prevent injury, which seems dangerous to me. Yes. And I, especially because there's rarely, if never discussion on that level at the, at the retail level about, Hey, maybe you need to think about strengthening the muscles in your lower leg or your glutes, which actually 
crazily enough, control a lot of the pronation at the foot. Or, hey, you're knock-kneed. Your feet are going to always collapse more than somebody else. Those kinds of discussions are never part of it. And I think that's where things get scary, is that they're trying to solve for biomechanics when they don't understand biomechanics. Okay, so as we kind of transition from that baseline to thinking of how, how people should think about fitting or, or at least some some sort of new principles that we've developed to, to think about the footwear process, I want to bring you in, Steve, to talk about our history because Rogue came into retail late in the game, so to speak, as we've talked about before. We're a training business and we coach people primarily. That's our core. We got into retail in 2008 basically because our athletes needed shoes and we wanted to help them do that. But as a result, we come from a different background from a retail standpoint. We don't come from a background of footwear, of retail. We come from a background of being coaches. So how has that forced our fitting philosophy to evolve? Well, I think the key word here is performance. And performance already has two different angles you can look at. You can look at performance from the standpoint of, getting a great performance or you can talk about what is actually happening while the foot is doing the things that it's doing and how that relates to what happens from a starting line perspective to a finish line perspective and that what's happening in each foot strike throughout each part of the process to the finish line is so important to what a coach does so to be outside that box to not be in the cage with your athlete talking through what's going on with their footwear process and what's going on with their footwear. It just, it felt like we were, you know, fighting a battle with our hands tied. So somebody else was deciding the most important piece of equipment that could possibly go on to the in, be in our athletes quiver of options to use. The most important piece was the wrong piece. And so it was like running with, I don't know, running with skis on or, you know, I don't know. I don't know the exact Basketball analogy. Shoes or something, <laughs> it's like yeah. not right. So we had to get in because number one, there was a need for it in the community. And number two, because we wanted better performance. We wanted better performance where, but we had a hard time finding it. I mean, it was not, it was working hard. There was a lot of smart minds doing a lot of different work over the years. Things happening at companies like Mizuno, New Balance, they started to change the way, you know, they still carry their monsters, you know, I mean, but they're, they're realizing and moving towards what's actually happening in a race or in a training process is so important to the way the shoe runs. But you don't see that at runner's world. You do see it. I do think you see a bit, bit more of it happening now since 08. It's the, the world has changed considerably in terms of the options runners have. Um, but at the time when we got in, it was fighting an uphill battle of trying to trying to fight the guy walking in or the girl walking in with the Runner's World shoe review, which I know exactly where that came from <laughs> right. and who wrote it and how much time they spent on exactly what was going on with that. <clears throat> There's people who might be listening <laughs> to this who know that I know what I'm talking about. And I know that it was not done in a scientific, systematic, controlled manner. It was... What did you like about this shoe? How did it feel on your foot? Which did nothing to sort of change the mentality and the approach of sort of brainwashing that's happened. I mean, I can put on my conspiracy theorist hat here real quick and get down to very brass tacks, but I'm going to leave that alone. Maybe for the we'll end leave of that discussion. alone. That'll be right. for another podcast. But isn't it also fair to say because you were a coach and you, you sort of only were dealing with the athlete for the most part before 08, you had to deal with what you could deal with, which was the body, which was how that person built themselves to be ready to work in any shoe. 
So you were also working from the standpoint of making sure the body needed to be strong enough to do the work. Yeah, we quickly came up with, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this uh, this chiropractic doctor, Dr. Davis, but his name's Ross Ebitz. He's pretty amazing. He did. He basically created the, the, the template for the foot drills that we do at Rogue consistently, and they consist of basically six basic foot drills that barefooted require the foot to go through almost every range of motion possible because we realized we were our athletes were being casted and the and and god forbid somebody give them a orthotic on top of (laughs) on top of the support shoe that they have but you know so we realized we needed to get them out of their shoes if it's only for two to three days a week if only for three to five minutes of doing these foot drills and we found plantar fascia limited considerably IT band, which was our biggest problem because of the timing of our marathon cycles and where they all lined up. People would stop running over the holidays a little bit, then they would have to get right back at it with where Austin sits in February, which is a particularly difficult time. So we were seeing lots of IT band. We would tell folks, if you're not going to run, at least do your foot drills. I would say foot drills are probably the most important first forward position we have because we don't have a chance to be in the weight room with them. We don't have the chance to go through all that process. So we've done, we, we were fighting a battle with what we had and um, found this amazing article and we've used it. It's been amazingly effective for us. Um, I'm sure it's very similar to the stuff that you all are doing in your clinic. We on start a with that basis. because we do their gait evaluations, both shot and barefoot. And you find out really fast that people's feet are so weak and that, you know, if your foot is weak, everything up the kinetic chain is going to have problems. And so that's exactly right. We start with foot drills and, and barefoot training with everybody. It's super important. So let's start shift gears and talk about, sort of fitting philosophy and how people should think about it. And I'm going to start with this mind-blowing statement, which is that it's actually not about the shoe at all, right? <laughs> right. If you start if you're if you're at a starting place and I think for those that maybe are have a history as a runner and know what they need and they have some history in footwear, it's a little bit different because you have some sure. history. But if you don't have a history and you're starting fresh as a new runner off the couch looking for shoes, it's not about the shoe at all. It's actually about the body first. And I think this is where it's been good to work with you guys because we can actually take someone who's walking in like that or maybe with some history and some pathology they've dealt with and send them up to get their form assessed first because it's really about the body first. Yep. Right? Yep. Totally agree. We, uh, we work with, we tell people all the time, you know, if you have great running biomechanics, you can run in any shoe you want to run in basically, because you look at elite runners and they'll take whoever gives them the best contract. They don't necessarily go with the shoe that they love the most, you know, but they don't have problems because they typically have very sound biomechanics. And so, and I think it's also important to note that what that means is different on an individual basis. There is no perfect running form. There's no ideal way that people should run. Uh, You need to look at the way somebody is structurally made up, you need to look at where they're weak and where they're strong. And their ideal running form probably changes over time, depending on where they where they now have strengths and weaknesses. You know, obviously their structure is not going to change, but all of those things go into the you know, quote unquote way that some that a particular individual should be running, and that affects what kind of shoe is going to be the best fit for them right now. That's probably also going to change in six months or a year, and they may need different shoes for different types of running. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. And I think that that's why it's important to have the the body looked at first. The body first. And what we like to say as a part of our philosophy is that the body should do the work. 
the footwear should just facilitate. Yeah. So if you get the right shoe, then it's just a facilitator. It's something that's helping you be your most efficient self, not necessarily controlling you or stabilizing you or changing how you run. If a shoe's doing that, then your body's probably not doing its job. That's right. So let's talk about pronation in this more sort of modern thinking. Where does it fit at all in the footwear decision process? If- I, I think it I think it matters, uh, but I don't think it matters in the way that historically it has been the end all be all. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think what matters more is does somebody when they pronate, do they come back out of it? Do they resupinate in a timely manner? Does it happen when it's supposed to happen? Do they slam really hard into pronation? Because that's going to put a lot of stress on the structures. So if if something like that happens, then I think you need to help them accommodate for that, both with a shoe, but also with the other conversation, which is, hey, let's work on the strength training in your lower leg. Let's do your foot exercises. Let's teach you some mechanics as part of your gait that will offload some of the stress at your foot. If, if, you're, if you're pronating, I don't want to use the term overpronation because I think that's a ridiculous word, but if you're somebody that's kind of in prolonged pronation or you're you're not able to get back into supination as as well as you should then i think that yes it's, i think you need to take the shoe uh, take that into consideration when you're fitting for a shoe but it also has to just be part of the discussion the other part of the discussion is the bigger part of the discussion which is how do we solve this long term and it is it also fair to say that if the speed and or the duration of pronation is an yeah. issue it's not necessarily a post that's the solution in the shoe. Right, right. right. I, think, I think the biggest issue if people are kind of prone, uh, pronating for, for a little too long, the issue is that what that does is when your foot pronates, your lower leg, your tibia, uh, it also internally rotates and then your femur internally rotates. It causes this whole chain of events up the kinetic chain. Well, if your foot is stuck in pronation for too long, uh, as it should be supinating and reforming this rigid lever to propel yourself off of, what's going to happen is your tibia is going to kind of get stuck internally rotated while your femur is trying to externally rotate. Well, that creates some torsion at the knee. So a lot of people who are sort of stuck in pronation, for lack of a better term, end up having knee problems. And so when you look at a shoe, you have to say, okay, how do we how do we solve this until we get these muscles stronger so this person can pull back out of pronation, get into supination, not create the torsion that they're having at the knee? So, and a lot of times strength training of the hips and glutes and things will also help that process because if there's too much stress coming down into the medial foot because of weakness up at the hip level, then good luck fighting that, you know, with a shoe or anything else. You got to solve all of these other problems and a shoe is just a piece of the puzzle. But isn't it also fair to say that it might be solved with a shoe that's firmer, that might have different characteristics sure. than just a yeah. pure post? Yeah, shoe. I don't think a post. I don't think a post is the answer in most cases. If you can find uh, something that's just a little firmer on the medial side, that's that keeps the person from really going, not necessarily too far in that direction, but just kind of helps the movement pattern a little bit. I think that that helps. But yeah, I don't think a post is is the answer very often. Sometimes people, sometimes an, an insert or a post or, or something to help the, the issue can be a very temporary help, you know, helpful temporarily. Give me something that can be a, hey, we can do this for 
a couple of months while we work on the strength component, and then let's get you the heck out of that. So it can be a temporary solution for a small percentage of the population if they're very severely having issues down there, if they're very weak, these kinds of things. But I don't think it's ever the solution. It's never the, here's the shoe you need to run in forever. This is going to solve your problems and you're amazing. You know, it's going to fix your running. Where do orthotics fit in that in that milieu and that in that viewpoint and where do you where do you so stand on orthotics? rarely do i refer for orthotics i feel like in most cases people get an orthotic they think that's going to solve their issues they end up having issues in other places that they don't necessarily contribute or attribute to the orthotic they don't realize that because we changed the motion at your foot now this knee and this hip issue is is you know coming from that same problem so very rarely do I put people in orthotics. I, I think occasionally if people have a ton of structural stuff going on, if they have really, if they have a ton of genuvalgum with knock knees, if they have mm-hmm. that, if they have something that's just a, a structural thing that you're having to work around until they get, so if they're hypermobile, sometimes these issues can necessitate maybe working them in an orthotic for a little, a little while until they get stronger and can support those motions in their foot and ankle on their own. But I think it's always a temporary thing unless somebody's just so structurally wonky or has had tons of you know fractures or things that have caught had to be you know you get occasional cases where there's they're out they're outliers but I think it's very very rare so most often I would much rather work on the strength and say hey you know perhaps you need to think about getting fit to run instead of just running to get fit I mean that whole concept I think people don't spend nearly enough time on the foundational components of running before they go out and try to do things like run marathons yeah Chris you asked me about my history and I just over the years was always absolutely shocked how many people were wearing an orthotic prescribed to them, fitted for their feet, professionally done, very expensive. And then they were buying the most expensive support-oriented shoe that was incredibly well-posted. So now they have got, and you would watch them, and they were being shoved completely to the outsides of their feet, almost distending over the edge of uh, of of the outsole. And it would just be, this is... This is absolutely crazy. Not yeah. not only some of that's human nature. If a little bit is good, then a lot <laughs> must be better. But somewhere along the line, a doctor or an orthopedist or or a chiropractor should be looking at what they're actually prescribing and how it's being used. I mean, it doesn't take too much time trolling around town lake town lake hike and bike trail before you start to just go crazy with looking down at people's feet. In fact, I can't. I have to look yeah. up at the sky. I can't, I can't, I can't even look at people's feet. I'll just go crazy. <laughs> Too much correction is definitely not a good thing, especially if you see it in, a lot of times we'll see it in kids who come in mm. and podiatrists Lots have prescribed that. orthotics to, yes. to kids who, whose feet are still developing. You're still trying to get those strength components in their feet and ankles. And, and in those cases, it can just be downright dangerous. I, I sometimes called it child abuse. Well, it's foot binding. Yeah. And, it, and, right. and it's basically Chinese foot binding. Yep. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. So let's talk about this. So uh, oftentimes people talk about arch height as having a big role in fitting. And a lot of stores that I know of, you walk in with a flat foot, then they're automatically putting you in a posted shoe. Some people also have preconceived notions about what you should do with a high arched foot. How does arch height play a role, if at all? So I think one thing that's really important to understand is that with flat feet, you can have actual pes planus, which is a flat foot that the ar- they don't have an arch, whether they are non-weight-bearing or weight-bearing. So their foot is entirely flat all the time. 
Um, and then you have collapsing arches, which look the same when somebody's weight bearing. So if you have somebody standing up and their arch looks like entirely collapsed and they have a flat foot, you can't make that judgment call unless you have them sit or lie down and, and move into a non-weight bearing position. Because a lot of those people, and I would say probably in our clinic, 80% of them, actually have a very nice arch. It's just that it collapses when they stand up. And so it looks like somebody who's got pes planus. And the problem is you have to treat those two cases very, very differently from a shoe fit perspective. Because somebody who's got a collapsing arch, they'll probably tolerate a little bit of arch support because it's holding their arch up. And until they get those muscles strong enough to do it on their own, then you know they, they may do okay with a little bit of arch support. Somebody who's got an actual flat foot, if you stick an arch in underneath that thing, you're basically collapsing the in- integrity of the bones of the foot and the way that the thing is built to absorb shock. And it makes no sense at all. And it's probably going to cause them all kinds of problems. So you can consider that a foot that's flat is basically a pronated foot. So it's basically a very flexible um, a flexible foot that is going to absorb shock pretty well, but it's not going to have any rigidity to it because it doesn't resupinate the way that a normal, quote unquote, normal arch would. So I think those two cases are, are a big thing that's missed all the time in the foot fitting industry. Um, and then really, really high arches are on the other side of the spectrum where they're basically supinated. They're very, most of them are very, very rigid. They don't have any ability to absorb shock. And so they're sending a lot of the shock up into the tibia and the knee because the foot itself is not able to collapse and really uh, become flexible like a, like a flat foot or pronated foot would. We like to say it's not about the height of the arch. It's about how it works. Right. <laughs> that matters. Right. Exactly. So that's sort of our simplified <laughs> vernacular on it. I have one, let me add one last thing on the high arches. I think that's, that's important. So uh, really, really high arches, people tend to bear weight on the outsides of their foot because you can imagine a foot that's uh, very, has a very high arch is kind of turned in or inverted. Um, So it's going to, you're going to want to bear weight on the, on the lateral side. So the problem is people see that high arch in a footwear uh, retail store and they say, oh, we need to stick an arch underneath that because it can't collapse down you've got this high arch we'll put an arch the problem is put an arch support under somebody with a really high arch it just pushes them even further to the outside of their foot and to your point steve that causes all kinds of problems with the it band and with the hips and you know puts so much stress on the lateral uh metatarsals they can end up with stress fractures it just creates a lot of problems and people look at that high arch and they think oh great we'll put an arch support under there because they have you know plantar fascia problems or what have you but really if you think about the biomechanics that doesn't make sense okay let's talk about as we transition, it, kind of common running injuries and how the footwear may or may not be related. So oftentimes people have shin splints. It's a sure. fairly common injury, especially for someone new to running. Footwear related or not? Uh, can be. There's a couple different kinds of shin splints. So you can have shin splints on, on shin splints on the the medial side or the lateral side of the shin. Um, they happen for slightly different reasons, but it's usually, a, it often happens in new runners because their mechanics are a little funky and maybe their ankle is a little too flexed when they land on the ground or they're really overstriding or what have you. Um, but one of the things that causes the, the scarier version of shin splints, which is the ones on the medial side, because that tibialis posterior muscle attaches very closely to the tibia. So if you keep running through the shin splints on the medial side, oftentimes it'll lead down the road to stress reaction, stress fracture, that sort of thing, because it's really tugging on that tibial bone. Um, but in any case, the, uh, the reason that those happen a lot of the time is because that tibialis posterior 
crosses uh, the medial ankle joint and attaches onto the bottom of the foot and helps support the arch. So it actually helps pronation and supination, eccentrically and concentrically, um, as your body's going through the gait cycle. And so it gets tugged on a lot as you run. And if it's not strong, it'll just constantly pull on that tibia and create some of the shin splints. So help, you can definitely help that issue with a shoe. Um, Not necessarily a support shoe, but something with a little bit of firmness to it just to keep that muscle from having to go through so much range of motion. But the long-term solution is always going to be in the mechanics because it's if somebody's getting shin splints they're doing something in their running that's causing that muscle to get overtaxed strengthening is important yeah okay let's talk about black toenails a lot of people end up with black toenails okay so how does that relate to footwear so there's a couple different things i think the most common people most common thing is that people think well my toes are black so the the go-to thought is well shoe size you know you might be it might be too small because a lot of people especially americans are just used to having their toes at the end of their shoe and so they like that feeling of it being tight around their foot and they don't realize that they need a lot more room around the the forefoot uh to let their toes spread out and actually work like they're supposed to so that's one problem is if it's just you know bumping into the end of the shoe uh but the other issue is that if you have stability problems or weakness up the kinetic chain and that can be in the foot and the ankle and the knee and the hip any of that stuff um, it's going to cause your foot to want to grip the ground and so you see a lot of people with kind of clawed looking toes and some of those black toenail issues you can work on fit all day long but if they're not stable and and their foot is having to claw the ground to create stability they're going to they're basically bumping that uh that nail into the footbed of the shoe and that can cause black toenails too and calluses and, and you know the clawed toes that you see so i think you have to address is it if it's not a shoe fit problem there's probably something in the mechanics or in the stability that needs needs to be addressed knee pain knee pain uh most common cause of, of pain in runners super super common we see in the clinic all the time um different certainly a ton of different causes um again i think this goes back to when you're talking about knee pain in relation to pronation if somebody is kind of stuck in pronation for too long and can't get back into supination you cause this torsional issue at the knee and that's a really really common cause of knee pain and again something that you can help it with a shoe but ultimately it's it's in the biomechanics and it's in the strength um it band is another one and i think it's important to note because a lot of people don't really understand the role of the it band that the it band is really meant to stabilize the knee it's not meant to be stretched and flexible and all you know, everybody thinks the the thing you need to do for your IT band when it's causing pain, well, you got to foam roll it and you got to stretch it. And that feels better for a period of time, but ultimately it's going to go right back to being an issue because it's not, that's not the point of the IT band. If you're, if you have instability at your hip or your knee or your foot, um, then the IT band is going to have to work a heck of a lot harder to try to stabilize that instability. So you got to get at the root of where these issues are coming from. Um, but yeah, IT band, I think uh, runner's knee or patellar tendon, tendinopathy is uh, is another big issue. And a lot of times that just comes from imbalances up at the hip. And a lot of these things can definitely be helped with the right shoe. They just aren't going to be solved with the right shoe. You know what I mean? It's going to, like you said earlier, it's a it's a tool and it's going to help things, but you've got to start at the root of the body and say gotta what's going on that's cause. causing these issues. Yeah. Yeah. I tell my athletes, if yeah. you have knee pain, Mostly, it's because you have weak, weak hips or ankles, and More often the knee not. therefore takes on the load when those muscles aren't doing their job. Yep. Yep. Okay, let's talk about general foot pain. One of the things that we see a lot in our store is that people have pain in the metal tarsals. Won't necessarily be a neuroma or anything like that, but just general foot pain. And one of the most common causes of that we see is that the the foot and the shoe have a mismatch in terms of their flexibility, in terms of how they're working. So we like to put people that have rigid feet in a little bit more rigid shoe so that they're working together 
and somebody has a really flexible foot in a little bit more flexible shoe. So again, the foot and the shoe are working together. Any other thoughts on sort of general foot pain? No, I think, uh, I think it's just important to get it checked out because a lot of people are under some misconception about what, where that pain is coming from. We get a lot of people in the clinic that, you know, think they have plantar fascia issues or think they have metatarsal pain or whatever it is. It turns out to be something entirely different and sometimes something a lot scarier than what they thought it was. And so I just think if if somebody's having foot pain, it's super important that they actually get it looked at and, and figured out. I think entirely different little side story but sort of related we've got a patient that we're uh, that we're treating right now that she is you know going through all kinds of stuff where down syndrome patients tend to be hypermobile and incidentally the down syndrome foundation really really encourages down their their population of kids to do yoga and that doesn't make any sense right because wow. if somebody's hypermobile the last thing you want them doing is yoga and so to your point, kind of matching what the body naturally has to what it needs, I think is it, there's an art to that. And I think people really need to understand how biomechanics works to, to, to match shoes to the, to the body. And even in, in that kind of situation, whether somebody should, should need stretching or whether they need strength training or what they need based on what their body looks like, that's an important conversation to have with those patients. So come see the experts. Yeah, I think and that's I mean, a good, just, I think that's you know, a good just, segue. Yeah, as as footwear experts, be being willing to have those conversations with people who walk in the door who don't aren't don't aren't really expecting that. You know, they come in to just buy a shoe, but when the people on the ground say, "Hey, man, you've got you know you've got something going on with your knee that maybe you should get looked at before we decide on a shoe," I think that's a really important conversation. I think it, that's again to the point of why we're here because you guys do that and it's such a cool thing. I think it's also important to note that we don't have all the answers. Yet, I mean, we're still learning, None as I do, said right? at the beginning, it's, you know, it's only been really since the 70s yeah. that we've known about or had this concept of a running shoe. And so our thinking is still evolving. The science on it is still evolving. Yeah. There really haven't been that many studies on types of footwear and how it relates to injury. Yep. There are some out there, mostly inconclusive ones. Yep, exactly. And so there's not a lot of information fully, fully baked and constructed. So we're all still learning and evolving. We're, we believe we're at the forefront of that because this is what we do every day. But at the same time, we're open to evolving that thinking as we go. I would, let me say one thing. In the evolution of, in the thinking of how we're evolving that way, let's not, re, let's not forget the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years of us utilizing our feet effectively unshod with no shoe on. Now, yep. we do sell shoes, and that's I do think having protection on your foot and we can use that evolution to make more performance-based footwear that makes sense but the foot is doing just fine and that's your point dr davis it's been doing this just fine for a very 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 long time and it's only been recently that we've been casting it and putting it into all kinds of you know it's been since the 1700s or 1800s people just started wearing shoes at all um it's to me it's it's an important thing to think about that we are on this cusp, as you're stating, Chris, that's important to look at, but we also, the foot's doing fine. And in many cases, letting it do what it's supposed to do is the very best thing you can do. Um, strengthen it, get it stronger. Because remember, that's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years of going without a shoe on. That means stepping on every rock, going through every range of motion, running very, very fast paces, running very, very slow paces, all the things that our ancestors uh, did evolutionarily. So. I think it's really important, you know, as you think about all the all the technical terms we've been talking about and all the all the specific ways that you can 
benefit it. Think back to your ancestors and you already have decent feet. If you don't, you've probably been to a doctor to see about it. If you're putting more miles on those legs, coming in to see what Dr. Davis does and what Run Lab does and getting your neuromuscular recruitment correctly, getting your those things to work the way they're supposed to work is probably the most important thing. Yes, you need shoes, but what you really need is really, really strong feet. And body. And body, and body. Yeah. yep, yep. So with that, we conclude that segment of talking about shoes by saying you don't need shoes. You really need a strong body. <laughs> But if you want to learn more about this piece of it, I've got a blog out there you can find on Google called The Myth of Overpronation. Dr. Davis has a blog on pronation as well, which we'll post in the summary. And then, of course, you can, under our shop section of our website, you can find more, more information on our fitting philosophy. So check those things out. And, of course, if you have any questions, send them to us via the comments uh, on the blog page or Facebook. All right. As we transition, we always finish with the training tip, Steve. This one is appropriately going to be on footwear. And I'm going to intro this by saying that the only study that I'm aware of that has definitive information about footwear and avoiding injury says the simple thing that it's not necessarily about what kind of shoe you're wearing, but that you vary shoes and are wearing two or three different types of shoes. That's the only definitive science in terms of actually preventing running injury it's not the type of shoe it's about varying footwear so today's training tip is along those lines all right so i like to tell every athlete that i coach that they should come prepared with all of their weapons to go to battle um, when i was a collegiate post-collegiate coach i would get very frustrated if my athletes did not have their spike with them their racing flat with them their uh, lightweight trainer and then their over distance shoe um, we had four or five different shoes in our in our quiver of, of, of what we used. So one of the important things about training is making sure you have the proper gear and a wide variety of options in order to be sure that you're using the right tool for the activity that you're doing. Um, you don't use a, a dump truck to basically scoop ice cream. Right. So you don't want to use the wrong. They both do a scooping method. They both put things into a pile, but they're both operating in a very, very different way. And so, you know, I think having two or three shoes um, that you're always using in your training cycle all the time. And that's your long run shoe, your easy run shoe. You can you can categorize them in a wide variety of different ways. It doesn't really matter. Just trying to make sure that you have two or three shoes in that process is important. I'm a big believer in using racing flats and lightweight training shoes where and when they're appropriate. Um, they're hard for people who are in training programs to have their sh one shoe that they warm up in and then another shoe that they get into. But the more variety you have there, the more flexibility, the better your body is going to be able to do the activity that's trying to do. So the training tip is make sure that you are using a wide variety of shoes that have a lot of different purposes to them and they're not they're not going to look entirely different they're all going to look relatively similarly but um do your research figure out what they are and make sure that you're in them because that is just as important as how many miles a week you run just as important as what 5k pace you're running at what 10k pace you're running at being sure that you're in the right kind of gear and having the right things to pull out of your quiver means whether you're going to stay alive or not so 
And if you need to fill your quiver, you can always come to Rogue <laughs> Running, where we have plenty of shoes. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks again to Dr. Davis for joining Thank us. You. If you want more information about Run Lab, you can obviously stop by here at 410 Presser Street in Austin or go to runlabaustin.com. And if you want more information about us, roguerunning.com, you can find us also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Rogue Running. Thanks again for listening. This wraps episode four. We'll see you next time.